Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the uh, Svarim Chatter podcast. On this edition of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Ramesha Kravitz, who is the uh, editor of the uh, m- most of the Sifri Svarno, Ravadio Svarno, um, his Svarim on, on Chumish and his Svarim on Nach and, and many others we'll, we'll discuss. So uh, thank you very much, Ramesha, for joining me. Thank you very much, Nana. So I always just start off tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, about your background. Okay, um, so it starts actually um, in New York City, in Lakewood, but that was before I was born. Um, my father was learning in Koyla in Lakewood. He was sent by the Mashgiach, Reb Nosen Wachtvogel. He was sent to Pittsburgh to help his brother-in-law, Reb Shol Kagan, to open the Koyla in Pittsburgh. Um, that's where I was born. I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. When I was five, Reb Nosen decided that um, the Koyla in Pittsburgh is already running good enough. And he sent my parents to France. So since age five, I, um, uh, I lived in France. That's where I grew up. I went to school. Um, my parents still live there, actually. I went in Yeshiva Ketana. I learned in the, it was the first, actually, the first Yeshiva Ketana in the, in the Paris, uh, in the northern France, I would say. They had one in the south, but the... Um, was the first Yeshivikhtana. We were five kids at the, at the time. That was all the Yeshivikhtana they had in, uh, in the Paris, all around Paris with the 300,000 Jews. Uh, today, the situation has changed a lot. I, so I learned over there, was uh, my Rebbe was Rabbi Yaakov Toledano. Probably uh, some hearers know his father, his illustrious father, Rabbi, Rabbi Fal Baruch Toledano who uh, wrote the, the Shulchan Aruch, Sfardesh Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, and um, composed the Ashore Shira, the song, very famous piyut. So uh, he was my rabbi, and I was the only Ashkenazi kid in the yeshiva, that's right. Eventually, I went to Gateshead. Um, actually, my mother's from Gateshead. Uh, she's a uh, Lopian from Gateshead. My uncle is Ravrom Gorvitz, Rosh Hashiva. Uh, from there, I went to Eretz Yisrael. I learned by Rebbe Tzvi and a few years in the Mir. Somewhere along the way, I uh, was looking for myself and I ended up uh, from such an illustrious uh, Litvish family, I ended up as a Chosid. Um, I married into a Chosidish family from Bnei Brak. Um, and I live today in Beit Shemesh with my family. And quite ironically, um, uh, I ended up uh, as I am, uh, as I said, as a Chosset from a Litvisher family and living in a very, very Chassidish uh, um, neighborhood and um, actually working on a PhD in philosophy um, in university in Paris and in Hamburg in, uh, in uh, Germany. And that all came about from my uh, work with the Sforno. And I was going to say, also, you're working on Italian jewelry. Italian jewelry, that's right. Everything's all mixed together over here. Right. So I guess we should, we should uh, how, how did you get into the Svarno? Well, I wish I could say um, that I really loved it since I was a little kid. And um, I was always attracted to this type of philosophy, etc. But it, that's not the story at all. Um, actually, I, uh, as a Bokhar, I was, uh, um, I think the only... Uh, the, the only thing I was really interested in was history, Jewish history. I read a lot. I was a bookworm. Uh, philosophy, I never even thought about too much. Um, what happened was I was 
I was a young married man. I was in Koilul, and uh, and um, I had a friend in Udav uh, in the same place as me who called who's called the Remendel Pomerantz. You probably heard of him. He's like today. Uh, he's a big shot in noise holder. So he um, he offered me to to work by him. And since I was looking for something interesting, so I tried out and I liked it. So uh, that's how eventually I got uh, he um, he hired me to write a commentary on Swarm on Chumash. Eventually I got hooked. I found manuscripts, even though they told me that the, they don't think there's anything to look in the field of manuscripts, but there was a lot. And uh, eventually when we finished the Chumash with Toys Behoder and uh, they weren't really interested in carrying on. So um, I had to carry on. I was just, I couldn't stop. And I carried on with the uh, Nach and others form uh, independently. Right, and we'll talk about those in a little bit. So I guess we should start off, talk about the Svarno, that's what we're here to talk about, provide you a Svarno. So um, I think maybe first, we should start with a brief overview of the Italian Jewish community. Uh, obviously, there are uh, many experts on this, but just if you could just give a brief overview for the listeners that they should understand the Tkufa and what exactly we're talking about. Okay, so um, first of all, the amount of quality that came from Italy in those generations, and actually for many generations, was uh, completely out of proportion compared to how many Jews actually lived there. Um, in Sforno's times, there were about 800 to 1,000 Jews in Bologna, I believe. Um, there are probably 40, 50 names of people who are uh, known to posterity that we know about today that were either Rabbonim, wrote Choshev's Forum, or famous um, doctors, uh, the amount of uh, very, very high, highly intellectual people in Italy was very, very high. But the communities were actually very small. The uh, Jews in Italy are probably the oldest community because they came already at the exile of Rome. They came mostly as slaves. They were, there was already in Baishenia already, there was, a, there was a community in Rome. Um, but there were a lot of Jews who came as slaves and were uh, bought off by the community. That's when the community started to grow. Um, um, it started changing a lot when uh, a little bit before, uh, actually uh, a little after Sporna was born, when uh, the Girish Sfarad, so you have a lot of Sfardi people coming in. You have from uh, Germany, a lot of coming in from the north. And it's really the first place you have, it's very central. It's central in Europe, it's central uh, as uh, closer to Middle East than, than, than Spain or Portugal or France. And um, they have much more connection with Eretz Yisrael than uh, other European communities. Um, it's really the first place where you have this situation of different kehillis, different nusachs and menhogim uh, that meet up in one place and you have a shul of the Sfardim, you have the shul of the Ashkenazim, of the Levantinim, and of the and the, actually the original I- Italians. So um, most communities in in uh, Italy were actually um, around the bankers, because uh, Jews weren't allowed to live just in any city, but they brought them in for financial reasons because they needed someone to handle a bank because Christians are are, are not allowed to uh, lend with interest, so they brought in the Jews to do it for them. Now the banker came in with his money and with his uh, uh, with his bank, but then he needed a uh, malamid, and he needed a shoichet, and he needed uh, 
So they usually let him bring in another few families. And usually that's how it turned out that um, the, the, the Kehillis in Italy were around the bankers. And the bankers, even after when it was going to grow and change, etc., but the bankers were always the main, um, they were the main sayers, not the Rabbonim. They brought in the rabbi. That's how, that's how it worked. The, the banker brought in the Malamid, who used to be also a rob and also etc. So um, that explains a lot of the politics that went on in Italy in those days. Uh, that's how most communities, and Svono himself was born in a very, very small uh, town, Cesena, uh, probably also uh, around the banker, where actually his father was, was the banker over there. So I'll just I'll just jump in also to give the, the, the listeners a little bit they don't want to know about this a little bit more. Um, I'm not an expert in this, so if I say something wrong, obviously people shouldn't you know should read more on themselves and Robert Bonfil and Ruben Bonfil and and others that have written on this. But in Italy, I just wanted to speak. Yeah, Italy um, also was interesting because Jews mainly were in the the north mainly because Italy at that time there was the Kingdom of Naples in the south, which is most of the Tukuv we're talking about was under the control of the Spanish. So it was Spanish. The, the Jews couldn't live there. You had Rome and the surrounding was the papal states. The Pope was the, the king was in charge of. So there, the Jews were, but it was more of a, a sticky situation. The Jews really were in the north. The north were really um, free states. The cities, each city was like its own country, so to speak. And you had... Uh, uh, the papal states um, did have the main Jewish communities. Right, no, they Rome. did, but... Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, they did. I, I should, yeah, you're right. But, but I'm saying also there was the North, there was a lot of, lot of Jews that came down from Germany. So you had Venice and uh, Milan, Ferrara, and it, 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 this goes on and on. Um, so uh, Milan, Milan didn't have a Jewish community. No, I mean, I mean, right. I mean, the, 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 the neighborhood. The neighborhood, the Dutch of Milan. Yeah, not Milan itself, correct. Florence had some, um, et cetera. Yeah, like I said, I'm not an expert on that, but I just wanted to lay the, the groundwork. So the Sforno, we said that Kuva we're talking about is he was, I think, 1475 to 1550, right? Or, or so. Right. So we're really talking Renaissance Italy, I mean, the height of the Renaissance, I guess, so to speak. Right. Uh, it's a little bit later than it started, but uh, that, that, so to speak. So you started alluding to the Sforno. Um, why don't you, well, I, I think actually we should start with, before we even get to his biography, I think we have to settle something very important. In Shiva world, he's called Sipornu. Okay, it's not his name. It's not Italian. But, but you want to speak? Why? What happened that he's called that? And wh- 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 how can we tell people that that is not his name? Well, the Yeshivish world has a problem with many Italian names which they didn't really know how to read, like uh, the Romami Pano and the Ricanti. Um, and actually, um, the Sforno um, was before the Yeshivish world because in Warsaw, in 1856. Uh, they gave out the, the Svorno on Chumash, and you read in the Polish, in the Polish uh, title, it's spelled S-Y-P-O-R-N-E, Siporne, right? So it's, a, it's, a, it's an old mistake. That's uh, over 150 years ago. Um, it's interesting because we don't really know where the name comes from. Um, it sounds like an Italian name, but uh, Svorno was originally uh, Spanish. His great-grandfather probably came from Spain. Um, th- did the name come along from somewhere over there? I don't think there's, could be things have changed in the last few years, but as, as, as far as I know, they don't really know. The funny thing is in Semach Dovid of Gantz, who was like right after his time, I even uh, probably uh, overlapped, he calls him Zefroini, Ovadia Zefroini, which was actually the name of Emmanuel uh, uh, Miroimi, 
the famous um, uh, the famous author who was who was to be mentioned by the Bishyosef in Shulchan Aruch, right? So his name was Zefroini, and that's not Sforno; it's a different family. And about Zefroini, also there's like uh, all kinds of uh, all kinds of ideas where the name comes from. There's a funny thing because there uh, someone wanted to say that there that it comes actually from a Roman neighborhood called Seprano. About Zefroini, not about Sforno, but about Zefroini. It comes from a place called Seprano, C-E-P-R-A-N-O. So um, that would explain uh, if that's the origin of Sforno, but it doesn't sound like from in his um, uh, in his uh, doctorate, um, which is written in Latin, he's called uh, Sfornus, Servidius Ovadia Sfornus, with a U, actually. Um, so, uh, okay, the, the, the right way is Sforno. Sforno or Sforno, but not Siporno. Right, and the guy also Rumami Fano. Fano is is a city, as well as uh, as well as Renacham um, Recanati, not Recanti. Right. <laughs> yeah, that 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 also we should clarify. Okay, so let's jump into the the Sforno. So why don't you uh you know give a you know, a brief uh, biography about of him? Okay, so um, first of all, most biographies about the Sforno that you'll check up online or anything will tell you that we don't know much about him. And that was true till uh, quite recently. Um, uh, you'll see articles will tell you that the best biography is the one written 130 years ago by Finkel, which um, uh, is not at all true today. Uh, there's a lot of work that has been done, mainly by Professor Saverio Campanini, who lives in Bologna. He's a great historian, brilliant. And he's come up with, uh, he's put out a lot of papers about Sforno. And there's a lot of information that today we have. And there's much more that's still lying in the archives. I mean, the archives in Italy is, uh, um, is uh, probably the largest archives there is about anything that concerns us. Um, speaking about, I once heard that in Bologna, if they would put all the shelves of the archives uh, one after another, it would go on for 22 kilometers. I don't know what that is in miles, but it's, uh, it's, it's quite big. So um, actually, quite recently, Andrew Burns gave out uh, the, the, the last will of the Sforno. And um, he found it in the archives. And he also put at the end a list of 150 documents, which he didn't go through thoroughly, but um, from the titles, he understood that it's something, things that concern Sforno. So he already found 150 um, documents in the archives, probably many more. There's a lot to do in the field, but we still know quite a lot. Um, something that we don't know is who taught him, who were his rabbis, that we don't know at all. We don't know where he learned. Uh, we don't know much about, uh, we know that he was born in, in Cesena, a small town next to Bartinoro, which means he could have known uh, the famous Rebovadio Mi Bartinoro. Um, this is actually um, a name where uh, we call him the Bartinura, and the name today is Bertinoro, but it's like a, an example where the uh, yeshivish way of pronouncing it actually uh, conserved the old uh, way of saying it because it was called Bartinora. It was called Bartinora and not like today, Bertinoro. So uh, we're closer to the original uh, name. That's an interesting thing. Um, it does happen. Um, so uh, uh, Rebobadi Swarno was born to a family that originated from Spain, uh, from Catalonia, 
actually in the manuscript of Shalshelis HaKabola, he's mentioned in Shalshelis HaKabola, but uh, very, uh, very short. There's a manuscript of a, a original manuscript, which um, hasn't been published totally. It's been used in different uh, papers, but not uh, still there's a lot, of, a lot to do over there because it sounds like when it was ready for print, they cut off a lot of pieces. And then there's a much longer description about uh, Sforno and his family. So uh, he, he says that um, it's one of like the biggest Muchesdeke uh, families from Catalonia. And um, his father's name was Yaakov, his grandfather Ruvain, and his great-grandfather in the paper is called Sanctus, which I would say it's probably Shemtov Sforno, which is a name I found that uh, in some uh, manuscript mentioned. He owns some manuscripts and it sounds like that's who he was. He's probably the one who came in. So that would be uh, more or less around the time of the Xerus um, Kana, Kufnun Aleph, which is 100 years before the expulsion. It could be that's when uh, the family came over to Italy. So um, we don't know really where he grew up, but it was around North Italy. Eventually, he was, we find him in Rome, but he married a girl from, uh, from Ferrara. His father-in-law was called Noach, Norze, Norze, or Norsa, they, they, they spell it today. Um, there's a very famous Emmanuel di Norza, who was like uh, the, the, the famous Gavra Alimo, they called him at the time. He was involved in big, big, um, um, big, um, uh, um, it was a big dintura, um, but it, it, eventually all the Rabonim in, in Italy and in Poland and, and in Hungary and Rebekah Polak was in, not in Hungary, in, in, in Prague, etc. were involved from all sides. It was like Haromim and, uh, and it was a big, very famous story. So he's called actually, uh, this Emmanuel, uh, Nortz is called Emmanuel Ben Noach. But I don't think he's a brother-in-law of Rebavadi Sforno because um, uh, Rebavadi Sforno's father-in-law must have been much younger than this um, Emmanuel's father. But anyway, he, well, we find him in Rome where um, we know that he taught. Uh, Reuchlin was, was a Christian diplomat from Germany. He was in Rome for a while and he was like the famous Hebraist. One of the, he was um, in the future, he was to become very, very famous for his role in saving the Talmud in, the, in Germany, which was a, um, a story that went on for years, and he was really worked hard to save the Talmud in, in, in Germany. That was Reuchlin, so he studied Hebrew. He was the only German at the time who could learn Talmud in the original, and he studied with Rebbe Sorno. We'll probably speak about it later. Um, at the same time, a bit later, so this was, um, Rome was um, uh, in 1498. Um, Finkel would say it's between 1498 and 1500, but uh, Saverio Campanini um, showed that it's, it's been exactly about three months that he learned with, uh, that Reuchlin and Svoro learned together, couldn't have been more than that, in 1498. In 1501, he gets a diploma as a doctor, medical doctor in Ferrara. But he didn't study in university over there because the diploma states that he studied outside the outside from the, the university. That means he studied independently. Um, it's um, we could assume that uh, his father-in-law's wealth was a famous banker in Ferrara and his connections 
probably helped him to, for a Jew to get a medical diploma, which wasn't so easy at the time, even though it wasn't unheard of completely. Um, from this wife, her name was Allegra, which is, uh, today they would call her Simcha. So Simcha Bashkenazim is a, a man's name. Sfarim is a, a, a woman's name. Um, in Italy, Allegra was also a woman's name. Um, he, had, he had four children that we know of. He had his son, Rabbi Yaakov, who was signed certain psokim in later years. Tzemach, we don't know anything about. Um, he had a son called Moshe Svarno. Um, a very tragic story, which was uncovered recently by, uh, um, by a researcher called Prokatya. That, um, uh, Moshe Svarno was a young man. He was married and he had a child, a little child called Shmuel Svarno. They all died in a plague in Rome. They all died in a plague. And the way we know about this person that he exists is because of the archives of uh, the court in Rome, where his brother-in-law, who was an apostate, who was, uh, had become a Christian, was uh, trying to get the uh, heritage, that the, the, the money left over by his sister and brother-in-law. Um, it's very interesting. It was a, it's great. It's a, a, there's a sugi and gvora about nofala uh, bias, and you don't know who died first. So that was exactly what was going on there. Uh, each one trying to uh, to prove um, who who died first and who's supposed to uh, get the heritage. Is it the Sforno family or the apostate? So that's uh, that's where we know about this tragedy. Eventually, um, Sforno moved over to Bologna. And the, the truth is that Sforno family in Bologna was already a very prominent family. They had banks over there, uh, cousins of his probably. His brother was was called the Nasi, which means he's probably like the president of a community, which means he's probably one of the most uh, successful, su- successful bankers over there, Hananel. And um, eventually, Hananel helped him out financially, and he also started to, to practice as a doctor, but he was also a dayan in the best of the of Rabbi Roma Koin, who was a big poisek at the time. And um, um, I forgot uh, Svonu's daughter, Devorah, which also is something that came up in the will, in the testament. Um, she was married to uh, Reb Elozer Matzliach di Viterbo. Reb Elozer Matzliach di Viterbo was... Um, uh, he was eventually also a doctor and a uh, rov in Rome in later years. He also wrote in Latin. There's an epistle he wrote to the Pope about, uh, about the Masoira and uh, there's different things that he wrote. Very, he was also um, very, um, um, remind, uh, very reminding of his father-in-law. His brother was also a Rav, Rabbi Yitzhak Akoyen Viterbo, about who there was a whole pulmus about a smiche, about the smiche which he got from Rabbi Yechanan Travis, uh, uh, sorry, from uh, Rabbi Yosef de Arli, who eventually became an apostate. It's also a very, a very sad story. Um, and uh, they were both, these two, the Viterbos were brothers-in-law of a famous doctor called David Dipomis, David Menat who wrote uh, a dictionary, uh, Italian, uh, Latin, and Hebrew called the Tzemach David, and other writings in Hebrew and in Latin. So um, that was a family. Um, 
we should mention that at his time in Rome, um, the Svarno was men mentioned in the diary of David Aruveni. Now, probably a few words about David Aruveni. Should we give? Um, I read the story when I was very young, and I was sure that it was like Chesidish uh, and you know, like these uh, tales um, that uh, with uh, no grain of truth and sort of maybe something, but uh, it sounds so um, such a legend. But then it turns out that everything's documented and it happened at the center of the world at the time it happens in the Vatican and Rome uh, and, and it's documented in the archives in Portugal. Um, uh, lately, there's been a book put out by Moti Ben Melech, a very nice book about Rav Shlomo Molcho, uh, which has, uh, he puts together very, very nicely all the information that we have uh, from, uh, about, this, about this story. Um, the story starts with this uh, very dark-skinned Jew who comes, into, who comes to Italy and um, he goes directly, instead of turning to the Jewish community, he turns directly, he comes into the Vatican riding on a horse and he just rides in when uh, along the way he already managed to uh, get Avon talking about him and Avon's, and he's being followed by a lot of people, uh, Jews, Christians, uh, he's actually the brother of the king of the Ten Tribes. And he's coming to uh, suggest to the Pope that they should conquer is Eretz Yisrael from the Muslims uh, by the fact that his brother has a very strong army, but they're just miss missing ammunition. They didn't have uh, um, cannons. They didn't have them yet over there. So he was asking the Pope to give him uh, letters to the kings of Europe to send with him uh, um, to send with him uh, um, ships full of ammunition with, with which they would come from the south, the Christians would come from the north, kick out the Muslims, and then, uh, then do some kind of uh, partition uh, between. So that, that was his idea, and actually he managed. The, the, he wasn't kicked out right away by the Pope. He actually, after a year of, of working on it, he, was, um, it, he got his letter, and he went with it to Portugal. But... Um, he says he wrote his memories, and in his memories, he writes that uh, about the four uh, important people from the community who uh, in Rome, who uh, actually didn't really trust him, and he felt that they were like trying to check him up the whole time, and um, he got upset at them. And when he actually got connections with the Pope, he managed to get them put into prison for a while. Then he realized that that he, it was going to be a counterproductive for his uh, to get all the Jews against him also when he needs them. So he took them out, and then he. But he mentions the four rabbon, the four rabbonim who came, who, who were involved and were in prison because of him. One of them is Rabbi Vadia Svarno. So he was like at the center of the story, and um, I've written about it that um, in the introductions to some of my swarm that. Um, um, Swarno definitely also met this Makubal Rav Shlomo Molcho, who David Ruveni, after when he goes to Portugal, so the um, he's this uh, Marano, or really new, new Christian because till then he didn't um, he wasn't officially he did he didn't keep anything uh, anything Jewish, but um, he, he he got to, at the age of twenty or twenty one, he was like at the top of the. Um, 
he was like um, what they would call over here Nasi Bagats in Israel, like um, the he was at the head of the whole court system of Portugal. Uh, a very brilliant young man, very uh, very good looking, very handsome, very noble, and uh, extremely a genius. And um, he was actually Jewish, but he wasn't even uh, circumcised. He didn't have bris milah. And um, when David Aruveni comes in, he gets he gets his visions, and he's um, uh, he feels that it's time to go back to Judaism. And David Aruveni is very very concerned that his contact with him is gonna make only make trouble. So he he tells him not to show any connection with him. So he actually does a bris milah on himself, and he gets into a real. Um, uh, danger, life-threatening danger, until uh, some Malach comes and uh, takes care of him, and that's his first vision. Um, eventually he goes, he runs away from Portugal. He's uh, um, uh, probably went first to Italy, but then he was in Salonika by, uh, he learned by Rabbi Yosef Taitatzak probably. Uh, there, he got, he was, uh, there he got to know Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Bess Yosef, and uh, then he comes back to Italy and he joins forces with David Ruveni going around Italy and telling everyone about Mashiach coming. And um, he, he's in three years since he circumcised, so he's already putting out um, real Kabbalah's form. Like uh, you have the Sefer Amafar, Amafar, you have the Chayas Kone. Um, no one really understands. So uh, academics will say that that's a proof that, that, uh, that in Portugal, the conversos didn't circumcise because that was dangerous, that could be checked up on, but they did study because you see that Reb Shleva knew so much after three years, so he had to have studied, which um, um, Reb Shleva Malcho writes, uh, that, writes himself that, um, that his... Uh, it, his knowledge of Torah has been uh, given from heaven, and and he answers on things that on things that he doesn't even uh, remember having learned, etc. Uh, he's speaking about visions, about uh, things that are coming from supernatural, and everyone looks at him that he has the, which is actually documented because uh, the Pope is afraid to start up with him because when he says that there's going to be a earthquake in uh, Lisbon, that's what happens, and then he says that the Tiber in uh, Rome is going to go is going to overflow and uh, and and pour over the whole city, so that's what happens. And actually, uh, the, the, um, the Pope is under pressure to, to take care of him. Uh, you know, whatever, this guy's going around and, uh, and he's bringing all the, the conversos back to, to Judaism, even the Christians don't know what to do with it. So uh, they tell him to put him to death, which actually he does. But uh, if, uh, it comes out that he was afraid to start up with him, so he killed someone else instead, someone who looked like him. So the story gets even worse because he came back from the dead. He's still going around. Um, so eventually he was put to death. He was killed on Kiddush Hashem. He was burned by the stake in Mantova. And Svon refers to these two stories when he speaks about, in Parashat Zvayechi, about, uh, about um, the broches that Yaakov Avinu gives Yehuda. So he says Yehuda was supposed to be the father of, of the... Uh, David Amelech, from who comes Mashiach, etc. So I'll tell you what are the signs to know who Mashiach is. So that, you know, in the Shurim, which are written by the Talmud, so he says, so that not just any impostor should come in and say, I'm Mashiach. So he says, first thing, he's going to come on a donkey, not on a horse. Because a donkey, you come in not to make war, you come in for peace. When you come for war, 
Actually, Davidur Ruveni was suggesting to conquer Eretz Yisrael by war. That's what he was. And Mashiach is going to come to the Jews. He's not going to go to the non-Jews. He's, he's not only to the Jews, but to the uh, to, to the tzaddikim, not to the uh, simple people. Uh, David Ruveni had trouble. He kept away usually from the from the rabbis. He was uh, like more with the um, Hamonam, which uh, were more uh, interested in him. And and he said, and actually, when Mashiach will come, it will be after Eretz Yisrael had uh, has already um, um, been um, um, how do you call it uh, flourishing. In there, there'll be what to eat. There'll be there'll be an abundance. So he was saying all the signs where it says that it can't be David the Ruveni. In uh, in Tehillim and even more in the Shurman Tehillim, he speaks about the Mekubalim, Baalei Kabbalah Maasit, who use Shemot Akdoshim to to do supernatural things. And he sees and he says that even though they're holy people, but the the, the end of them is always bad because that's not the right thing to do. You're not allowed to do it. And 50 years later, the Arizal is going to tell Reb Chaim Vital, don't use Shemo Yisakdoshim to do Kabbalah Masses because whoever did it didn't finish off good. And his, one of his two examples are Reb Shleim Amolcha. So uh, it sounds like Sforn was involved in this whole story. He knew what was going on. And it's even more than that because he actually sat in the best in, in Rome with someone called Reb Yisrael Ashkenazi who was eventually to, be, uh, to go to Yerushalayim and who probably met David the Ruveni two years before he got to Rome. So, uh, and he was involved with Rabbi Vrom Halevi, who Gershon Shalom uh, wrote a lot about. He was this um, uh, messianic Kabbalist. He was like, um, uh, put, out, put out books um, uh, in Meshare Ketrin, and uh, he was like, um, he was like um, trying to prove that uh, Mashiach is supposed to come um, I think the dates that were given were Reish Tzadik, which is 1490. Um, so um, there was a lot going on at that time. And Mari Beirav, who was also the Mechadish of the Smiche, was also in Yerushalayim at the same time. And Ralbach, when he came out against this Smiche, decided that um, he, wrote, he writes in one of his letters that I remember, you, you don't tell me that you're trying to make the Smiche because... Uh, because uh, to be able to give the Balichuva Malkus, etc., and you want to—that's not what you want. I remember the whole group of uh, of people in Yerushalayim who, was try, who were trying to bring Mashiach, with uh, doing all kinds of things to bring Mashiach, and that's why you want to do the smicha. So um, this Rabbi Vroma, Rabbi Vrom, uh, Rabbi Sroh Ashkenazi, who was one of the main Talmidim Mari Mintz, and he was like one of the main Rabbonim in, in Italy in his time, went to Yerushalayim, and he was part of this group. And he was corresponding with Italy. So Sporno know, knew what was going on in all these things. He was involved. And um, so uh, this David Ruveni and Reb Shem Molcho, he was like very against. But the Smicha um, in the Omar Agoin on Tehillim, the Shurim, uh, it sounds like he was very, very positive about the Smicha and very upset that it didn't work out. So that's uh, the interesting background because um, speaking about Italy, but at the same time in Italy, you have so much going on in the world. And Sforno's in Rome, which is the center of the world at the time. So somehow everything's going through him. And I've seen, an, I've seen someone write a, a paper about Sforno. And he says it's very interesting that um, he doesn't write anything about what was really going on in his time, which is Girush Sfarad and, and David Aruveni, Shlomo Molcho. 
it's not true. He referred it to quite clearly to these things, just not always where you would expect to find them. That's a that's the truth. Um, carry on. I could jump in for, for 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 a minute over here. So first of all, yeah, going back to what I said before, I misspoke clearly. There, there were plenty of Jews in the papal states. Um, like you said, it was in Rome. I just meant I think it was they had it better in the in the in the free states, but but the non-papal states. But um, so Shlomo Malcho, first of all, I think the Bishayim calls him Hakadosh Shlomo Malcho, right? In, Shlomo Kedoshi. The, the, yeah. the Maggot. The Maggot calls him Shlomo Kedoshi. Ah, that's where it is. Okay, so that's perfect. That's where it is. So last year, I think, there was a safer that came out, Kisvei Shlomo Malcho, and then the same fellow who published that published um, Meir Benio when one of the volumes in Asufot had published something, Lechun Uran and Al So this guy now put it, he published it also as a separate safer with some other stuff. So there was a couple of farm uh, published as, as well as the biography that you alluded to that was uh, published as well by Yad Yitzchak Ben Svi. That's about uh, um, Molcho. Um, so, so yeah, so but, but I guess we should get back to the Svarno, um, um, even though the other part is, is very interesting. So the Svarno, like I said, he ended up in Bologna. He, he at that point, did he, he had a yeshiva there for the rest of his life? Um, I don't really know what you mean by yeshiva. Yeah, we don't, I don't mean the regular definition of yeshiva. We should clarify what yeshiva means also. But I mean right. in the old right. sense, so, the Italian sense of a yeshiva. Um, you definitely had students coming from different places in Italy to learn by him. That we learned from different letters. Um, a lot of a lot of things that were put out by uh, Yaakov Buxbaum, uh, Buxenbaum on uh, Igris Jude Italia and all kinds of uh, see so over there we see that he actually people came to to learn by him. Uh, was it a, really a yeshiva? Um, how did it work? It sounds like um, uh, it sounds like he was giving more shiurim on 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 Tanakh than on uh, Gemara. Um, the basics over there were that he had to know some basics in philosophy uh, because that's what a lot of his term was uh, based on. And um, how many people were actually there? We don't know. Not yet, anyway. And um, he, was, he was a Dian over there in the best, but he was, as, from the time he came to, um, to Bologna, he kept a very low profile. Um, the few halachic truths that we have from Svorno were written in his, um, in his Rome years. When he comes after that to Bologna, there's nothing. Uh, besides for uh, one truth from Maram Padova, which is Maram Padvev, we'd say, call it in Yeshivish. So uh, uh, there's one truth where he writes to, Svor- to Svorno where it sounds like um, the Svorno had written um, an anonymous truva to explain and prove that the Rav, Rav, Rav Roma Cohen is right. Now, Rav Roma Cohen was older than Sforno, and he was, um, he was, um, he learned by all the Achroines Svarad, I mean, the last, the last Rav in Svarad. Um, he had this, yeah, he was a very prestigious, he's brought down in Binyom and Zev, and in different truths from the time we'll mention him, it was, he was like a, a famous poetic at the time, and it sounds like from the time Sforno came in there, he didn't want to, um, you know, step, step on his boundaries. So even when he came to help him out, he wrote his truva anonymously. Um, actually, uh, something else that happened uh, to Sforno in that time was that he prints, he, he, he prints his or Amim. Um, the printing in uh, the printing in uh, in Bologna is a story. They didn't print much over there. 
Uh, Rabbi Romakon was also involved in the printing. Uh, it sounds like he was involved in the, in, the, in, in the actual printing. That's what it sounds like. Um, and he also got married there a second time. His wife, somewhere along the way, uh, passed away. And he married uh, Julia de Pisa. De Pisa, the family of Rabbi Ram de Pisa, was a brother-in-law of his, was also one of the big Rabbonim, but he was more historically more famous because he was, um, he was in charge of the banks, besides for the Pisa banks, he also was in charge of Benvenida Abrabanel's banks. So uh, there's a lot of uh, historic documents about that, but he was considered one of the very, very prominent Rabbonim in Italy at the time. Um, he has a chuba which is brought down in the Ramami Fano. Um, uh, and um, so he was Sforno's brother-in-law and also was, sounds like, one of the students who sat by the shurim because he's mentioned twice in the manuscript of a student of the Talmud, he's mentioned twice. Uh, so it sounds like he was there and he was like speaking up from time to time. Sounds, I want to jump in. It sounds like you have a lot of material. So when are you writing a biography on Sforno? <laughs> Excellent question. Um, it's, it's actually one of the projects that I really love to do. I don't think I could do it alone. Uh, you're speaking about uh, archives, which I don't know how to handle with at all, especially it's Latin, Italian, and it's handwritten. So um, as much as I managed to, 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 to the, teach myself to read um, uh, Jewish manuscripts, but legal manuscripts uh, is a different story. And you have to look for them. You have to search. There's a lot to do. Um, the whole time, uh, uh, Campanini is coming up with more information the whole time. Every, every year he puts out another paper uh, where, uh, more details. Uh, different people are still finding from all kinds of different, uh, different aspects. So eventually, I wish that uh, eventually I'll have time and, and some, uh, maybe a team that would uh, be part of a team that would do it. But I don't think something I could do alone. Right. Okay. Just wanted to ask. Um, now, a couple of things, getting back on what you mentioned, we should discuss about Sfarn a little more. So first of all, um, you mentioned his doctorate. So it is, it is his doctorate that he got from, from university. Um, the, the, it is around, right? It's available today. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it's still in Ferrara University or the, uh, there's a copy that was, um, I th if I remember well, it's in one of Carpi's uh, books about, uh, about Jewish doctors in Italy, where he has a copy, a uh, uh, picture actually of the Sforno's uh, doctorate. Right, that, that's interesting. So something else I think we should mention was you said he was a Rebbe of uh, Reuchlin. Reuchlin, he was his Rebbe. Um, so he, you mentioned to him, we should discuss the story a little bit more because it's, 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 it's very important, you know, in Jewish, Jewish history, um, obviously, um, because, because he was, I think, I don't know, uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, but the Pope referred him to Sfarno or something. I, I seem to recall, I could be wrong on that. You'll, you'll, how did he get hooked up with him, the Reuchlin? And, and I just wanted, just before you talk also, that, that he... Um, He's obviously famous because, like you said, when he went to, when he left, and a little after the Sforno was nifter, right, a little bit later, the, the Gemara, unfortunately, was burned in, in, in Italy in 1553. But in Germany, I think uh, Pfefferkorn, the, the, the was was behind this. But, but uh, I, I think at that time, uh, Roslin really defended the Gemara and he really saved the Gemara from being burned. As Matthias is, uh, was, was not Jewish and he saved the Gemara and then that's why they ended up having Gemara there. So we want to talk about uh, what happened. Uh, right, so that was a very central event that happened in the, at the time. Um, the, the story of the books, of the, uh, the Jewish books, about the Talmud in particular, 
that went on in Germany was actually when the Swan was still alive. It was 20, it was like in the, in the 40, in the 15, 1530s, I, would, I think. So if I'm not mistaken. Um, and now let's start from the beginning. I mean, for, no, for, you mentioned that uh, Reuchlin saved the, saved the Swan and he really worked hard on it. He's actually mentioned in Tiferes' role on Pirkei Ovis, when the Tiferes Israel wants to uh, mention some non-Jews who uh, like um, examples of uh, of Hasidim um, so um, he has a list of people who did uh, who did big things for humanity and uh, eventually also for uh, Torah, even if they didn't really mean it, like uh, Gutenberg, who made the press, uh, and he mentions Reuchlin, who actually died for the Talmud because um, he actually um, was uh, oppressed and, uh, and um, he was really, um, uh, they, were out, they were out to get him because of that. Uh, he worked on it for years and he really um, um, didn't live uh, the years he could have lived if he, had, if he hadn't mixed into this, uh, this story. So uh, he says that he's an example of Hasidim was Oilam, even though um, I won't say Reuchen was such a Jew lover, right? Um, but he really liked uh, the Jewish science, the, the Talmud. So um, Rotten was a diplomat, could be even, uh, could be even a study to be a, um, uh, to be a priest. Uh, we're speaking now in Europe at the time when uh, Luther is already starting up his, um, uh, his reformation and Reuchlin never joined the reformation and he was against it actually, but um, he was one of the main people who, who actually brought it around because he was um, like he was like one of the humanists and the Hebraists who were saying like you know let's let's go back to the sources and let's check up everything from from new etc. and trying to, to 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 go back to the original ideas and to new ideas. So um, he um, he had a big part in what happened in the Reformation, even though. He didn't go along with it, actually. So he came as a diplomat to Rome, as a German diplomat um, in the Vatican. And he was already, so um, it's not true that Sforno taught him Hebrew because he knew Hebrew well. No, absolutely. I wasn't saying that he taught him Hebrew, for sure not. That, that for sure he didn't do. Oh, you'll find that in, the few, in, the, in a few sources that he really? taught him Hebrew, but he came, uh, he came to him after he had already wrote a, the dictionary of Hebrew, of Hebrew. He knew Hebrew well. And uh, what did he really want to learn, want to study with Sforno? So um, uh, what Saveri Campanini came up with is that he works also on Reuchlin's uh, library, etc. And when Reuchlin wrote everything he wrote and which books he used and when he bought them, etc. And so what he came up with was that Reuchlin wanted to learn Kabbalah. That's what he wanted to learn. And that's what he officially came to learn with the Sforno. It was after he knew uh, Hebrew well, he probably knew a lot of uh, other things besides for Hebrew, but he wanted to learn Kabbalah. So what actually happens is very ironic, is that probably the Sforno convinced him that the main Mekubal was Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. And his main Kabbalistic work is, Kabbalistic work is the Moran of Uchim. And since uh, that time, Campanini has shown that uh, Reuchlin starts mentioning um, 
Rabbi Moise Egitium, Rabbi Moshe from, from Egypt, the big Kabbalist, and he brings the Moranevuchim, which he had studied then under Swono, and he actually thought that was Kabbalah, even though Reuchlin didn't know a lot of things in Kabbalah, and he wrote actually a whole book about the Shema Mephoirish, and he was trying to prove the Trinity from Kabbalah and all kinds of different... Uh, uh, he was trying to use the Kabbalah for Christianity. Uh, but it sounds like the Sforna managed to convince him somehow that, um, that the real Kabbalah was actually Marun uh, which is quite ironic. Uh, I, I, I think you also think so. And, um, and uh, that's how probably he got out of it. Well, the Sforna, we don't know how much he was implicated in Kabbalah himself. He never mentions almost anything about it. Um, actually, it was uh, at a convention in Hamburg University where they have a, they have a team over there working on the Sforno. So um, that's where uh, Campanini um, came up with his, this idea. I mean, he spoke about it and proved it more or less. So, um, so Professor Zev Harvey was, was over there and he says, oh, that reminds him uh, that reminds him the story of this, uh, this guy who comes to the Lower East Side when it was all these green Jews came in from, 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 from Europe. And he goes to this Chinese restaurant and there's a Chinese waiter there speaking Yiddish. So he goes up to the, to the owner. He said, wow, how do you do that? How do you teach your, the waiter Yiddish? The Chinese waiter, he taught him Yiddish. So he says, be quiet. He thinks it's English. So that's, um, that's something, that, something that happened to Reuchel, which is very ironic because he was an extremely intelligent person. But it sounds like that was the only way the Sforno found that he could, um, uh, he could get out of it. Um, so he was teaching, so he taught him. We don't really know if he taught any other Goyim, but it could be there were other, it could be there were other instances where you had to do it. Um, I thought um, somewhere I heard that like the, he went to the Pope and the Pope referred him to the Sforno. Is that just like made up legend? Like um, the Pope? No, I never, I, I never heard that. Uh, that no, sir. Uh, sorry. That probably was just made up. I just don't know where I saw it. No, um, it, it, it probably did come. The, um, the, the there were all kinds of different theories of who sent him to the Sforno because. Um, it doesn't sound the Sforno was so important at the time that um, that Reuchel would know to come to him. So someone probably sent him. So there was a Cardinal Grimani who uh, was once thought to be the one who sent him. Other things, it's uh, Giedo di Viterbo. Um, um, I don't think I don't think there's clear information about it. Right. <clears throat> at that time, um, I think at that time, you'll correct me wrong. Was was Leo Bacher? Uh, Elijah Levita, everyone from was he was he in Rome at the same time as the Svarno, and was did they have any sort of a, of a shaykhs? Very interesting question. Um, I'll tell you, I never I never made the connection, and I'm always surprised from um, as much as I've read about the about the times, I don't always put together different people who were at the same time, and I'm surprised suddenly to discover all kinds of people who Svarno probably met. Um, secular from, from the non-Jewish world and from the Jewish world. Um, so th this happened actually, I was in France where my, I mentioned before, my parents lived there. And I met this, uh, this friend of mine who's, uh, he's very he's an intellectual, uh, 
very intellectual person and he, he's into uh, all kinds of different uh, history and philosophy and he, uh, and he asks me this question exactly. He tells me, um, was it the same time? So um, I checked it up and I said, you know what? They were born, could be even the same year. They passed away the same year and they were in Rome the same years. It's happening exactly at the same time. So he says, you know, I have a friend whose pastime is Leo Bachor. And um, Levita, other people would know him as, or, um, or uh, the Metorgamon, the Tishbi, uh, was famous medactic and uh, uh, at the time. So um, he has this friend who's very, um, very into Elio Bachor, and he organized the meeting. Now, this friend of his name is Daniel Deni. He lives in Ramat Gan, and um, he actually, he's a professor in nanotechnology. Um, he does it really as a pastime, Elio Bachor, and we sat together and really try to exchange notes, you know, Whatever we, I know, I know quite a lot about the Sforno's life. He knows about uh, Elio Bachor, so let's see. Maybe we could uh, put them together, and we couldn't find anything. So he was uh, actually Daniel. Danny was like very bothered by this, and um, I suggested he should ask my um, um, the professor who's guiding me in my PhD is uh, Professor Alessandro Guetta from Paris, and I suggested he should ask him. So he sent him an email, and I was very uh, surprised by the answer he gave. Um, he said, it's true that they live together, but there's no reason they should come across because the Sforno was, um, was the God of Lador and, um, and Leo Bachor was an outcast of the community. I was very surprised to hear such an answer from an academic because, because um, Leo Bachor is probably viewed as much more important person uh, historically and uh, and uh, in the Yudish um, Wissenschaft than, than the Sforno was. Uh, but um, anyone who knows what was going on really, he understands that he was really not part of the Jewish community. He was like a very, very um, interesting and independent person. Um, now, one of the things that uh, Leo Bachor was, uh, was put aside at, at, in his day was because he taught non-Jews Torah. Um, the famous one was, he actually lived for 12, 13 years by the Cardinal Agilio de Viterbo, who was like the closest uh, Cardinal of the Pope. He lived in his house and taught him Hebrew and he helped him out with his uh, Svarim. Yeah. I think, <clears throat> I wanted to jump in, one of his Svarim, I forget which one, the Mavli, the, the, the Obakar defends himself on that. He defends himself for doing that, right? Exactly. So um, in the Akdomot Maser Samaser, um, and that's where actually I found the connection because, because I'm going through um, uh, Bachor's defense on, uh, on his teaching Goyim Torah. And he writes, well, he says, why do they accuse me? Am I the only one who's done it? There are other people who've done it who are much more important than me. Uh, very famous Chachomim and doctors and Rabbonim, uh, which uh, quite clearly uh, refers to the Sforno, and which is saying, uh, you know, whatever, he did it also. Now, the interesting thing is that years later, unintentionally, um, in, uh, in, in Hoffman's uh, Melamed Lehoil from uh, the Rabdov Tzvi Hoffman and his Shuvis, 
um, about a tshuva about teaching non-Jews Torah. So he, he says that even though G'doyle Yisrael, like Rabbi Vadya Svarno and Rabbi Leo Bachor, did it, but they did it for the, to, to help Klal Yisrael, and, and the, the Rabbonim of their generation came out against them. So it's like a simplistic, um, like mis- mixing both as G'doyle Ador, and that the Rabbonim came, came out against, because that's not really what happened. Um, it was very, very different. The Svarno probably did it because he had no choice. Um, and, and definitely what came out from, from what the Svarno did was Reuchlin saved the Talmud from being birthed in Germany. Um, we don't know about such success. Besides which, um, his grandchildren who were with him in different places, in Izni, etc., and actually uh, uh, eventually converted to, uh, to Christianity, they were blamed for many years of being behind the, the surface of Talmud in Italy, but it's probably not true. But they weren't, they weren't very good to the Jews, that's true. His grandchildren, though they were very, very proud of their grandfather, and in say, his, um, um, Eliano was his grandson, um, likes to sign himself in, after he censors the uh, Sforum. Eliano, the grandson of the famous Metaktek, Rebel Yobachor. Right, so um, it's very interesting to see how the same thing was done by two people at the same time um, and um, had different consequences. Right, and like you said, they were different. The Svarno was uh, Gadlador and Liobachu was not. Um, now, Liobachu, actually interesting, his farm have recently started to be reprinted. Zuchan Aaron's published a couple of them. There was an edition of the Tishbi with different Haggais of Gedalim published by Mazuz. A number right. of people. So, so if people are interested in that. Uh, the Primagodim, Primagodim uh, says that uh, someone who wants to know Diktuk, um, uh, etc., it's, it's definitely, um, he was definitely the only Ashkenazi Medaktik we have to talk about. Right, he also, uh, he also hasn't did no Diktuk, right? He also was a novelist. He was also a novelist in Yiddish, the first Yiddish novel, right? Yeah, we should, we should mention that. But uh, definitely want to talk about Leo Bacher, but for a different, different time. So uh, back to the Svarna. So, I want to talk about his other writing. Obviously, he's famous for his Pirish Alatayra that he actually did not publish. It was not published until after by his... I'll let you talk about it in one second. Actually, let you talk about that. And then we'll get to this from Nach in a bit. But talk about his... his, When was his Pirish Alatayra published? Who published it? And also, um, Aramim. I think we should should talk talk a little bit about Aramim. Okay, so um, the, the only book... That's very interesting because the only book that was printed by the Svarno himself... That he took care of printing, which means that that was probably the most important thing he had to print, in his view, was the Oramim, in Hebrew, which he printed in 1537, and then he translated himself into Latin, and printed it in 1548, which is like a year or two before he passed away. So um, to go through the censorship and uh, all the um, all, all that was uh, implied in printing at the time. And just for the for this not very big uh, not very big uh, safer, which is to prove um, the basics of the Judaism, um, which is even the Hebrew one is or Amim is like to prove it to the non-Jews. It's in fact trying to give the Jews the answers how to prove um, um, how to prove that the world was created, how to prove that the soul is eternal, which was a major philosophical debate in Bologna at the time with Pampanacci and, uh, and, uh, and different philosophers, which uh, 
in the church world was also a very big debate, the Nitzchis um, HaNefesh, which is one of the main, probably it's, it's probably even over 40% of the book is Perak HaNefesh. Schar um, So, um, yeah, and he actually goes and translates it into Latin also, which is only for the non-Jews. Whereas his other, uh, his other works, he didn't print that all. The only one that actually was published in his lifetime was on Perkei Office. That's just because um, they printed at the time uh, Machza Roma, which is actually the sitter of, of uh, Italian Jewry. And um, with the Pirush of Rabbi Yechon Travis, the Kimchat Avishuna. So on Pirkei Ovis, they wanted something, some plus. So besides the Pirush of the Rambam, they put also the Spornos. That was printed in 1540. Um, besides for that is, is all his other works as um, um, on Chumash, on Koheles, Shirshim were printed 17 years after he passed away um, by his... Uh, I mean, the manuscript was preserved by a grandson, Hanan al Chaim ben Yaakov Sforno. But uh, at the same time, um, he had a lot, a lot of copies also. It sounds like it was very popular because in the 17 years, like 30, 40 copies that are extant today, that means uh, it, was very, it was very popular at the time in Italy. Um, eventually, in the, eventually um, his, the Ramamifano. Um, when uh, when uh, they came to him to publish the the Rashbet's Pirush on Eve, the Mishpat Tzedek, uh, sorry, Mishpat Tzedek is a Sforno, I can't remember which one is what, but uh, so the Pirush of the Rashbet's on, on, on Eve, so when they came to him, um, uh, he gave them the manuscript of Sforno also to, uh, so they, it came out together in the same volume, uh, the Pirush on Eve, Eventually, until him also came out, and so that's uh, more or less what was at the time. I mean, like 50 years after, uh, after Sforno, that's that's the uh, writings that that came out. Right. So you mentioned Aram, the only one that he published, and then he himself uh, translated into Latin, and he actually interestingly dedicated it to King Henry II of France. So there's a French connection. I mean, what was his shaykhs that he that he you said it was written, it sounds like from the name he was written for non-Jews, but he actually dedicated it, I think he sent it to King Henry, right? Yeah, to the very holy Christian King Henry II. Uh, um, I can't really figure out um, the politics of the time, but Henry II did have some kind of, uh, of claim on Northern Italy. And it could be that there's Catherine of Medici was also involved in the story. Um, actually, I tried to read as much as I could about trying to put things together, but I didn't really figure it out. I don't really know why. Um, he also sent, uh, he had dedicated his, uh, we have a manuscript on, uh, on, on Kaelis where he dedicates it to King Henry II of France. So uh, there was some sort of intellectual connection. I think, Henry II was the one who started off the, the National Library, which was the Royal Library, actually, which owns a lot of uh, original Jewish manuscripts. So it sounds like he was interested in these things. I don't know much more about it. Right, I don't either. I think Catherine de' Medici was the wife of, of King Henry, right? And she was obviously the Medici family. So, yeah, there's a lot of connections over there. It's just interesting that he, people should know that he wrote it in Latin himself and he sent it. I think, does he write his name as Sforno also there? Does he sign, how does he write his name in the Latin edition? Do you know? 
I can't remember, um, but it definitely wasn't uh, Siporno. <laughs> I seem to recall that he did, that's why I'm asking. Okay. Um, now, um, something else, so about his Pirish Alatairo, which is the main, the first thing that you really published, I'm curious, I, I, is there any, are there any like, non-Jewish sources that he discussed? We already, we already mentioned, I guess, before that he talks about certain events that went on during his time. You have to like, look to see it, but are there any non-Jewish sources? I know in Parshas Noyach, he references Rus HaKaldi. Is that the only thing? He, what is that? And is that the only thing that he references? Uh, if you're speaking about his Pirush al so there aren't, there aren't any sources in, in, in Sora al He doesn't mention any sources Besides for the twice in Parsner where he mentions Brois Akaldi, which uh, Berosius was a famous uh, Akkadian um, uh, historian, but uh, the information Sforno got was from a forgery that came out in his time by Anias de Viterbo. So uh, uh, it's like very ironic that the only time he actually mentioned the source, the source was actually uh, forged. Um, he never mentions any sources at all. Not besides, uh, even Chazal, he won't say where it says, but he'll say Ke'omrom or Ke'inyan, but um, there's no sources mentioned. Uh, in Oramim, uh, of course, is built on, uh, on Aristotle, on uh, um, very much on Averroes, Ibn Rushd, that's, what's it mainly, that's what it's mainly based on. Um, and there's a little other philosophy books, but... Um, um, he doesn't mention in Alatur, no sources mentioned at all. Sometimes you could track back to ideas that uh, are taken from different sources, like uh, the same, the Averroes and, and Aristotle are very prominent, but in his Pirush Alatur, not so much. That's very interesting because um, he didn't, even though um, in very basic things he used this philosophy, but um, when it comes to usual comment- commentary, he doesn't he doesn't use it at all. Right, I think I said Rus is Baros, like you said. What's interesting is also that you, I guess, I don't know if you discussed this, but you see from that that he definitely was reading the contemporary uh, scholarship of the time. I mean, I, I don't know, if, I don't want to draw like a, a strong conclusion, but he clearly knew it. He definitely, um, it sounds like um, uh, much more than we would think of. It was like, it, um, it was, it means that he was reading what was coming out at the time, right? Yeah, that's not, only, not only older philosophy books, but even uh, what was going on at the time, he was very involved, it sounds like. Right. So in your edition, um, like I said, first it came out as a five volume from Ezbahadur with Chumash, Rashi, Svarno, and your notes, Biurim, Maharas, Biurim, and then it's been recently reissued in two volumes without the Chumash Ramashi, just as far enough with the, with the period. So two, two things about it. First of all, uh, you were not the first. Um, I believe the Masada of Cook has a edition of Sfarno, and also Rabbi Cooperman um, from Michalah, who's famous for his Meshachachma, also actually has a, a two-volume Sfarno. So, you know, talk about how yours differs a, a little bit and how how did you go about, you know, what, what style did you go about in writing your Horus of your room over there? Okay. Um, so first of all, um, why I wrote it, as I mentioned, was because Oizvahoda were giving out this Mikros Gdolus with commentaries on all the Mephorshim, and they needed someone to do it on Sforno. So um, uh, I, that's, that's why I got into it, and I didn't do it because the others weren't good or something. So, um, so that's the first thing. There's not, no, uh, nothing uh, very... Um, 
very dramatic about the difference between uh, the works. Now, um, that said, uh, Mossad of Cook did a certain work from manuscripts. Um, they used nine manuscripts as they, write in, as they write in the introduction, but they didn't always use them. That means that they used them uh, when they thought there was what to check up. So um, even in the actually uh, the actual print, there was quite a lot to um, there was quite a lot to to check up and to correct. Uh, Rabbi Cooperman used the nusach of Mosarav Kuk. Mosarav Kuk has very very um, uh, very short notes and doesn't really explain much. So when you speak about Sforno, which is uh, he himself writes very very short and. He never explains what his question is, never explains what his sources are. So um, that's what actually I was supposed to do, was explain a question, explain what he's coming to explain, compare it a little bit to other Mephorshim. Um, eventually, I, um, when I got into it and I started checking up manuscripts, even though I was told that that's not really the job I'm supposed to do because that's done already. So I discovered that Mosadarov Cook wrote in their introduction that there's a manuscript in Russia, which we don't have access to. And it could be that's actually an autograph. So they were right, because um, actually in Russia, they had the, this manuscript from Sforno himself, but it happens to be like um, a draft, his first, um, like, um, his first try. And um, so that was very, very helpful for a lot of things, because sometimes when he writes even shorter than he actually wrote, but sometimes, um, you know exactly what he meant, even if you had two different ways to understand. Now, um, Rabbi Cooperman, um, he also did a lot. Yeah. I just wanted to jump in on you for a second before we get to Cooperman's edition, once you mention that. So just, what's interesting is, is that when Mossad Cook published their edition, the library in St. Petersburg was not available. But when you worked on it, I guess that was a difference we should tell people, then it became right. available and that's why it was available. And you actually published the entire Madura Kama in, it's in the back. So now it's also published besides for the... Uh... That's right. That's right. Because there's so many differences. And I realized that there were so many points that I didn't even, that every time I read it again, I, I came up a new, another point, which I didn't realize, which he changed a half a word here. And then at three pages later, another half a word, which was actually trying to make it fit with the change I had done. So I decided that, uh, that uh, I have to give the public at least uh, the chance to find out for themselves what, the, what went on over there in the original manuscript. Um, so as I was saying, Rabbi Cooperman wrote his commentary on Sforno, um, which is in a lot of ways, um, he had the same intentions as uh, Oiz Behardar had, except that he wasn't working for a firm, so he didn't have uh, their directives. So he could put a lot of his own stuff also in, which sometimes I like to do in my, uh, in my own swarm and I couldn't do it for his brother, like uh, all kinds of uh, things which were not really, um, well, like just something that you understand following a swarm or you could understand something somewhere else. So I can put it because it's not my safer. I just have to explain Sforno, not more than that. He did it a lot, which uh, actually sometimes are interesting. And um, uh, uh, some people really like his, his stuff. Um, the truth is that uh, uh, Rabbi Cooperman passed away a few years ago and I never met him. And I always wanted 
I wanted to meet him. I wanted to speak to him about Sforno. You know, we both put into it so much time and effort. I was very nervous. That could be, um, I mean, I didn't do it uh, by myself. I did it because I was paid for it by Oswald Odom. But could be, um, you know, um, I'm, a comp- I'm, I'm competing with him. He wrote a, a year of Pirish and I did the same thing. So I was uncomfortable until... After he passed away, I got to know the family a bit, and I uh, and uh, one of his Talmidim, Yitzhak Steiner, and that's where I realized that I didn't understand who Rabbi Cooperman was. First of all, he was uh, he was a Talmud of my grandfather, Rabbi Lopian from Gateshead. Um, but uh, the way he got into Sforno was because he got very upset about a paper written by uh, from academic who was was uh, explaining that Sforno was such a humanist, and that's what he was, actually. Um, so he was making this real uh, Renaissance uh, um, humanist, and, and um, that's, that's what he was all about. And that got Rabbi Cooperman very upset, and he, he wanted to show how he was explaining the text, and he was explaining um, with Chazal, and he was referring to Chazal, and it was coming to... to and, and it wasn't humanism. His ideas weren't coming... Could be of... I mean, definitely there was some influence from the ideas that was going around, and he wanted to refer to to, to actual events that were going on and and and, and ideas that were that that existed at the time. But to say that that was the whole person was made him upset, and that's why he went into it. And I found out later that if uh, if I had met him, actually he would be very very happy to to know me and uh, and to, to to speak about it more and to find out about the other findings because he really wasn't looking to further himself, but he was really um, trying to show how the Swarno was this thorough personality. And uh, even if there was an influence of humanism, that wasn't what he was. Right. And then they also, I believe his uh, Swarno was reissued. They, re, they redid the text. I mean, it's now laser printed a, a few years ago, his two volumes Swarno. And also, I think the grandchildren published, or his son, somebody published on Shira Shirim, his also on the Swarno on Shira Shirim. It's in the back of like his, it's a couple other Swarno Shira Shirim. In the back, they have his Shira Shirim. I don't know if you're familiar with it. They have right, yes. Uh, I think Rapillal Rapil yeah. put it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so what's interesting also is, I mean, at least I found, like you said, it's more, it's different than yours. I think also yours is more focused on, like you said, the directive was, you know, each, on each piece, footnote, what's his question, what's coming to answer, and then what's the answer. He doesn't do that every time. It's more like, not read, but like it's more talking about it. It's a little different, a little bit different style. Right. Than, than, than yours is. Um, so... Uh, another thing that we, we, we should mention is that you have a couple of Sfarim on, on Nach. So, so I'm looking at what I have in front of me. You have Yishaya, one lives in Yishaya, one on Kehelis, Shirim Ros, and then Yone Chavakuk Zechariah. So uh, you didn't do Telem, you didn't do Eve yet, which are the ones, uh, you didn't publish those yet. You published these four. But of the ones that, that, that you published, are those all um, from, from his writings or some of those from his Talmud, which we'll get more to in a minute. But where are those from? Oh, so Yeshaya was actually in the autograph manuscript from St. Petersburg. Um, it wasn't known at all. It wasn't cataloged. Um, actually, the pages were all mixed up. And since very few people know how to read his handwriting, which I also didn't know until I spent a good few years on it. Um, so uh, um, Yeshaya, no one knew about till I uh, till I started working on that manuscript, and that's also because Mustafa of Cook didn't have access to it when they worked on the manuscripts. They didn't have, so, so that's where Yeshaya is from. 
Um, now, Koyelis uh, Shir Shirim were printed in the, with the with his Birshan Chumash. Um, Rus was a part of the a part of the story of the Omar Agoyim, which is a second story. That's where the manuscript, a copy of a Talmud, who but but he's copying from the Purush of Svona himself. So, so we'll get right. So we'll get to that. So, so the, the Svaramanach you, you tried were your notes that you publish yourself, and people can get them. As uh, I think you have like Machon Ravaja Svarno, whatever you call it. Is that are those? Is your notes trying to do the same thing, or no? They're simply they're different than than the artist you wrote Al Taira. Well, I I had much more. I was much freer to write much more, which I did. Not everyone likes that, but um, um, the, the Svarno writes so short, so. Uh, um, so uh, there are those people that doesn't bother to to bring all the other places where you refers to the same ideas where you could show what he means over here. Um, you, um, if you're familiar, you're, you're definitely familiar with the Maral Mechon um, Yerushalayim. So the, there's some people hate it because there's so much, um, and uh, other people who feel that you know you don't have to read everything, but when you need something, it's there. So I, I, didn't, I don't think I went that far, um, but I did, um, if, like, um, if I had a sort of idea that um, this form was going to explain a suya somewhere, etc., so I had no problem putting it in, which I couldn't do in the Chomish when I was working for, for a firm and not for myself. Right, I think what's interesting also is that you published the text of the, whatever Sefer was written on, so it's Kehalas or Shir Shirim and Rashi as well, which is nice. Um, for people. Another thing that you published as well is Misechus um, Avis, which is Farnaham also. Um, so that's something else that, that's interesting. And then I think we really get to the Omer Hagoyin. So I think I, I told you the story uh, um, before, is that uh, Sukkis, I had it with me, uh, Baratius, I was, I was like, I this, this year Sukkis, and uh, someone saw me holding it, and he came over to me, he's like, oh, can, I, can I see that? I said, sure. He's like, is it Vilnagoyin? I said, uh, no. And this is something that's been more than once, but it's a story that people have gotten confused. So what is it? Um, to, 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 to clarify, you've published two volumes now, Alatira and on Tehillim, recently Tehillim. So what is it? Uh, where's the name from? So what is it? When I was busy with checking up uh, different manuscripts for the, um, for the Chumash and the other writings, so I came across this... Um, this um, a manuscript which um, um, which was written actually on the uh, on the Gilioinus uh, on the um, how do you call it in English on the sides on the sides yeah the the, the uh, it's probably a better word for it I, is it marginalia um, is that the word sorry marginalia is that the word is that the word you're it could be the margins yeah margins would be fine. So on the margins, it was actually, it's a very expensive book because the Sefer was Ralbag Alatoira from the first print of Avram Konat. Uh, probably, um, they don't know exactly when it was printed, but probably 1476. So it's like in Kinabla, it's like priceless. And it's a whole book that was uh, preserved in the Montefiore Endowment in London. And um, on the margins, the margins were full with this writing, which... Uh, in the catalog, said that it's a copy of Sforno on Tehillim and on Chumash. 
So I thought, let's see if um, maybe um, maybe there could be some better um, some better versions. So I checked it up, and I realized that it's something completely different. And I'm going through it, and I see this is Svarno, but it's not. But it's not. I mean, it's the same ideas. It's even a lot of the same terminology. Um, but but it's it's not what we have. Until I realized it's simply um, this student Talmud is sitting in the shirim's phone and writing the shirim as he's saying them. So uh, we have this, uh, like you have the shirim of Rebaruch Ber, Balpeh, which is much clearer than the Bekeshmul, right? So you have the same thing with Sforno from 500 years ago, um, the way he said it in the shir, and it's much more understandable. It's not always exactly what we have in the printed edition. There's, there's a lot of changes in tail and much more. But, uh, but basically, it helps a lot to understand Sforno better. There's a lot of Pirushim that were written there, were said there actually, and uh, written by the Talmud, which the Sforno does, didn't see fit to write for some reason in his, uh, in his Pirush. And there's a lot of things that are explained much longer and sometimes sources also. So um, if I always thought that uh, Sforno took a lot from a Barbanel, and that's what I, in, in my edition on the Chumash, I was writing always because I thought that's where the source was from. So I find out that, no, actually he took everything from the Akedah Yitzchok, um, which is a famous claim of uh, Rameir Arama that is that, that um, Abarbanel uh, took a lot from his father. Uh, as the Chida puts it, uh, um, which is true, like he brought a lot of things, but it's, uh, it's true that the, the amount, the percentage of Akeda, which is in Abarbanel is very big. And every time that I had written Prentas of Abarbanel, I actually found that, yeah, it was an Akeda Sitzchak, which I didn't um, see any reason at the time to check up. And I found that's the real source, not the Barbanel. Over here, he thinks he brings Harama or Akeda, as he calls him, uh, either Akeda or Harama, very far, like Habarbanel, so Harama. Um, so um, that's why I decided that it's uh, important enough to print it as a, as a safer for itself. Now, uh, the name. So since it's a Talmud writing the Shir, and he's writing it, uh, I don't know if he really actually wrote it when it was being said, but it definitely was around the time. So he was writing it. Um, um, he starts off a lot of uh, a lot of the shiurim start with Omar Hagoyin. Now it's interesting because um, Goyin was used in Italy in those days. It was used. Uh, there's a tshuva. Reb Lezer Ashkenazi speaks about it. How can you use Goyin? That's the name of the Goyinim. And uh, but uh, and then he. Uh, it was used to di differentiate between these normal musmochim, where there were many of them, and the real big rabbonim. So they called them the goin. So that's how he called them, Omar Goin. Now it's true, and I, I, I knew that most people would see the book and think it's a Vilna Goin, but I thought it was a nice name, it was fit, and uh, it definitely caught the eye of people because... Um, uh, it was only the the only safer I put out from Sforno that really went. The Chumash went like um, was sold sold out very fast. 
Well, I think also what's fascinating about it is is that the fact that you have uh, somebody that's just far so early as Tachrayim and 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 that Kufa is on Kreskudas, and they have a Shiurim of a Talmud. Like you said, it's able to expound upon what he says. It's very interesting. So, you've published Al Taira, and then you published Tehillim, and you said the Rus was from there. Is that everything now from that manuscript been published? Uh, no, I actually used it also when I put up Kehelis and Shirashirim, even though um, they were printed with the Chumash in uh, 1567, that means for 17 years after this forum passed away. Um, but I found lines that were missed out in the original print, which, uh, which in that manuscript, which is a copy from, from Svono's writing, um, uh, uh, existed. And, and uh, I, I fixed up some mistakes that I found there. That, so I used it for that. But it's, um, the, there are some uh, parishes where there's no shiurim. I don't know if it's because Svono went on vacation, because it's very interesting. It's like uh, the first... Uh, like the parishes of Dvorim, you know, the Dvorim and the, the first parishes of Dvorim, which if you look in the Chassidish form, you'll also find that there's very little said in those days because the Rebbe's went away uh, on vacation. So uh, uh, is that what, why there was no Shia? I don't know. But a lot, but usually um, the tongue filled it up with copying after the Svarno passed away. He copied from his Pirush, uh, the Pirush that was actually printed. And I'm saying, but now that you've published all these farms, that's it? That's everything for the manuscript? From that manuscript, yes. Right, and there's one more thing, interesting, that's published in the front of your Chumash, Klolem Mehagoyin. He has some Klolem in, in, in Chumash, right? That's also in that manuscript? In, uh, in, not in the Chumash, but in the Omar Agoyin. In the, the yeah, Omar, the Omar on Chumash. The Omar Agoyin on Chumash, yeah. Right, that's something that appears at the end of that manuscript, right? Which is interesting. Um, so, okay, you have it, the, the Altair one that was published a number of years ago, had a very extensive introduction. I remember reading it, and I'll, I'll let you say it's over, but essentially you didn't know who the author was. So I guess you should go from how it was then until you got to tell him now who you discovered, who the author of this, you know, who wrote this year, who was this Talmud? Right. So at the time when I put out the, on the Chumash, I did write that um, there's a name that appears as one of the, uh, owners of the uh, of of the Ralbag, which uh, his name was uh, Matsliach Dinola, and I wrote that Finkel mentions uh, uh, Talmud of Sforno was called Elia Dinola, um, and he mentions a manuscript called Meged Tvot Shemesh, which uh, was written by him. Uh, we don't have that. Uh, it seems to have disappeared that manuscript. Um, but um, I did write that could be uh, if we uh, if it belonged to someone called Dinola and there was a town of Sorno, so it could be that's who we're, who we're talking about. Um, in the introduction to Tehillim, I already wrote that I'm quite sure about it. What happened in the meantime was this. Um, in Tehillim, he brings, uh, he brings some pieces in the name of Rebbe Vromi Pisa, who was Sorno's brother-in-law. Um, for some reason, I, I, I felt that could be, uh, could be had to do with something in the family or etc. So I, um, I, I furthered the, the question to these, uh, to this team in Hamburg who are working on Swanos Oramim and the philosophy. And I, and I showed them a few like things that made me think that could be actually Rabbi Romit Pisa was behind the whole story over here. Um, they said could be, but check up also Elia Dinola because because we're working on a manuscript which is 
uh, actually uh, um, a, a beer on Or Amen, which was written in, in the lifetime of the Sforno. And that beer was, uh, was uh, authored by someone called Elia Butrio. And we managed to, to prove that Elia Butrio is not his real name, but his name is Elia Dinola, who lived for a while in Butrio. Um, that's been proven completely today. They found really a document saying that Elia Dinola was called alias Elia Butrio because he had gone through that little town of Butrio, which is 20 kilometers from Bologna. So uh, they gave me that idea. So I asked them, can you please send me any information you know about this Rebellion Dinola so I could check it up. So they sent me the um, 10% of a Pirush on Eve, which is in the Oxford Library. Um, so um, eh, I, don't, I don't have full access to the whole, uh, to, the, to the online, you, you don't have access to it. So, but they had, they got, they, they, they got um, 10% of it. And they sent it to me just, you know, to check it up. And I'm going through it. And he mentions twice in those like 11 pages, mentioned twice his Pirish until, excuse me, I got mixed up. Um, I, I was speaking about a different manuscript. I just mixed up the Omar Agoin and a different manuscript on Tehillim. So let's start again. Um, as I was working on Omar Agoin on Tehillim, I knew that there was a different manuscript from a Talmud of Sporno on Tehillim, which was anonymous. It's in Parma and it's a thousand pages. It's a huge manuscript, beautiful manuscript. And he mentioned Sporno as Murid Sedek, my Rebbe, my teacher. And um, um, no one knew who it was written by. So what happened because uh, in the Omar Agoin, Rabbi Romi Pisa has mentioned, I checked up the piece where he mentions it, and I checked up over there in that manuscript on Tehillim, and I found that he uses almost the same language as what's brought down in the name of Rabbi Romi Pisa. So I thought maybe Rabbi Romi Pisa authored this huge Pirush on Tehillim, which um, I suggested, and they told me, okay, could be, but check up also Rebellia Dinola. So when they sent me this on Eve, I found these two places where he refers to his Pirush on Tehillim. I checked up the manuscript, not on Maragoin, but the Parma manuscript. And in both places, it was exactly what it refers to. That's where it is. The, that means the Pirush that's on Eve, which written by Abira Royfim Rebellia Dinola, um, is the author of this Pirush on Tehillim, um, which is the Talmud of Sforno. Now, how does that bring us to the Omar Agoin? Because in, in, in um, most places, the language is the same language. Sometimes it looks like he's copying, he's like paraphrasing old pieces from the Omar Agoin, which led me to believe that actually, since I thought maybe it has to do with his Rebellia Dinola, because uh, the name Dinola appears on the manuscript, um, it sounds like this was what the Talmud wrote after the Sforno passed away, and actually mentions the date where he's writing this Pirish, the Parma manuscript, which was in 1557. That means seven, eight years after the Sforno's passing. He's writing his own Pirish, but he's using as a base the Omragon, which he had written from the Shurim of his Rebbe before. So that's, um, that's how we get to Rebbe Elia Dinola. In, in the introduction to the Omragon on Tehillim, I've shown how many uh, parallels there are between the uh, Pirush Antil with Omar Agoin, 
and what, why it sounds to be quite certain that Rebellion Dinola also was the Talmud who wrote the Shiurim, which would mean also, since we know that he wrote also Biron or Amim, uh, uh, which under the name of Elia Butrio, which was actually Rebellion Dinola. So it sounds like he was like a sort of um, secretary or writing or trying, could be some, uh, some type of um, write, uh, trying to help out the younger Talmudim who didn't know too much about philosophy because that's what he, he does in his beer in our Amin is like more explaining the notions, etc. So it could be that was the type of connection. Now, after my discovery and their discovery about uh, these two manuscripts, which were anonymous till now, um, on Oramim and on Tehillim. Um, so um, the re researchers have been interested in this Rebellia Dinola and actually found out that he, um, he got a doctorate in Bologna from the Bologna University in for 1540. And the very interesting thing is that it's signed by the, um, um, the boss of the university over there in Bologna who was known at the time. And it's also signed by someone called a Jew called Ovadia di Pedrafita. Now, um, I don't know where it's holding, but um, a, a couple years ago in Hamburg, um, they, they, they were, that, that's when all the information was, was coming up. And uh, they felt that this Ovadia Pedrafita was actually probably the Sforno. And Pedrafita was probably a street where he had a bank or something like that. So um, um, I don't know, it prob it's probably gone further since then, probably have more information. There's uh, Campanini, as I said, and uh, Guido Bartolucci, uh, who's also um, from, from the University of Calabria, who's, who's written about Rebellia di Nola. Uh, there's more information coming up, and it could be actually, which would mean that uh, Sforno was not only teaching Torah, but he was also giving um, signing on the medical uh, degrees of his students, which is a, a very big finish, I think. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. And to be clear also, the Aram by the team in Hamburg that's working on it, they're working on a new critical edition. That's something, Aram is something you don't, you don't plan on working on, right? Aram, um, I don't have who to work for on it because um, um, the yeshiva shoyelim won't know how to read it, and even if I explain it, they won't be interested. The academic world, world is going to have the Hamburg, the critical edition, which is going to be Hebrew, Latin, English, with notes. Um, actually, I mean, it's uh, um, as I said, I had no background in, background in philosophy at all when I started off. So when I was working on the on the and I was trying to explain the Swan on Chumash, I realized that there are a lot of basics that I'll have to learn. So uh, I went through all the Kisver Sforno, and then when I get to Oramim, I must say it took me a long time. I had to go through it a lot of times till I, till I figure out my way through it, till I understand what was flying. Um, it actually helped me a lot because later on uh, in Hamburg, um, um, where they're working on the critical tr uh, edition, so the first time I was there was actually the first session we had when I was there. They gave out um, a sh sheets with uh, pieces of or amim which uh, appeared in the Hebrew but not in the Latin, and they were having a very hard time explaining it. So that's where I came in, and because I uh, 
I had tried it, I had figured it out and it was a lot that had to do with, um, you had to have a yeshiva, a yeshiva background to understand it because that's why they can understand it. So, so that's why I'm curious, why do you think there's no need for a Bnei Torah edition, so to speak? They won't use it as much, but it's still the, the only safe, like you said, the Svarno published. She obviously felt it was important. And we have not a Masada of Cook, but it's very hard. It's not helpful to use. It's not, if you would do something like the other Svarim, it would be that somebody, you would open up the Svarim's Torah more. Someone could actually learn our Amim now. We have other Sifri, Sifri philosophy from, from all other, you know, Rishayinim. I mean, I, Okay, so uh, I'll tell you, first of all, we're speaking about 3% from the Sefer, which is the part that I could understand better, better than academics. So we're speaking about a very small percentage of it, not, not about the whole work. Um, most of the work is based on Aristotle and Averroes. So um, even, even people who study philosophy aren't in the, today. It's, it, um, it was actually, um, it was outdated right after he passed away. It was like, it was like uh, in the... Um, and the, you make Sisa of Aristotle. I mean, it's like uh, Svarno was trying to prove this major Chiddush that you don't have to believe Aristotle and everything he says when uh, 30 years after he passed away, everyone knew that Aristotle made a lot of mistakes. So um, um, we don't know how much share Svarno had in it. It doesn't sound it was very popular at the time. It didn't sound he was really, uh, he managed to get it very popularized. But um, uh, we're speaking about it was, he felt that it was something that you have to give an answer to at the time. And it's not actual at all today. It's not what, it's not what the Sworn would put out today. Okay. He did publish it. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Maybe one day. Um, so getting back, we should finish off with the old Dinola. So you did mention earlier on, I think that you're working on a, uh, a PhD. So it's not on Sparno though. As much as we talked about Sparno, it's you're working on Dinola, I believe. And maybe you want to speak a little bit more about him. And are you planning on working on this uh, massive, say, for his manuscript on Tehillim? And what does he talk about there? How does that differ from the Svarno on Tehillim? Yeah, so uh, the thesis uh, of my PhD is actually is, first of all, transcribing the whole manuscript, which, for Hashem, I completed. Uh, um, I had time during Corona. So uh, I finished transcribing. It's been about 1,000 pages. Um, uh, it's roughly, um, I printed it on A4 with uh, smaller letters. It came out like 700 and something pages. Uh, it's, it's a huge mass of, uh, which doesn't have that much to do with Tehillim. It's on Tehillim, but it's, um, the way it works is like this. Every Perican Tehillim has an introduction. The introduction has a subject. And the subject, that's the main part of the book because he's like bringing up all kinds of subjects and he brings everything, all the different, um, all the diff different um, days, starting from Chazal until his days, until Sforno, I would say his last one is mentioned. And, um, and, and from Aristotle until also uh, much less modern philosophers of his time, but there are also a little bit. Um, mainly from classic sources, and he's trying to like make his way in all kinds of different subjects. Now, um, he's speaking about 150 chapters of Tehillim, which each one has this huge introduction, which is between three and 20 pages. Um, and, the, the, and the subjects are the real, like, um, the most hot subjects of his time which means philosoph philosophical subjects, 
but also a lot that have to do with um, Tanakh, like sometimes he takes a parak in Tanakh and takes it to pieces like Abarbanel would do, but what he does, he brings Ewan until Abarbanel and then he takes his own way, which after he has done that, he'll, um, he'll get actually to the capital to Hillen, and he'll write his Pirush on it, which is a lot of it is really copied, Mamish, the words copied from the Omar going on to Hillen, but, but he changes it. Um, sometimes he changes completely the Mahalich. Um, and somewhere in that to Hillen, he's going to use the idea that comes out from the whole dissertation that he had brought before. So it's, uh, in fact, the, just, the, just to go through the subjects he mentioned is like a summary of all the hot subjects of the 16th century, the end of the Renaissance in Bologna. Where also the very interesting thing, which I'm going to write a chapter of in my thesis, in is um, he discovers Kabbalah after Svonu passes away, which he hadn't done before. Um, probably because Svonu didn't, uh, didn't, either didn't want to go into it, or he didn't hold that it should be um, made public. But uh, Rebellia Dinola, yeah. I'm also curious if that has to do with the timing, because after Svarno was nifter, shortly after Gemara was burnt, and that's when the rise of Kabbalah really happened also, right? That's been written about. So does that also have to do with it, or you don't think so? Uh, it definitely does, because he's writing in, in the year 1557. Uh, 1557 is seven, eight years after Svarno passed away, and it's a year before two, the two princes of, Sv- of Zoya were given up. And he's using very extensively uh, Zoya. And um, not only that, but um, he's in Bologna where all this is happening because you have Rabbi Manuel Dilates who's over there and Rabbi Ramdi Agnello. They're all involved in, they're working now on, on publishing the Zoya. That's what's going on. There's a whole war going on between the Rabbonim. If you should do it, you shouldn't do it. And between the two different publishers, etc. It's all going on in the same place. And he's, um, he's speaking about all this philosophy, but he's also, um, uh, he's also um, telling us how much he regrets having, having so much invested in philosophy and how he wasted his young years in it. And he's thankful to Hashem that it didn't, uh, that it didn't uh, ruin his amuna. But the main thing is, um, is, is, Kabbalah. That's that's that that's his maskana. So even even though he's using very extensively philosophical sources, he's writing that he regrets really having. It's a, it's something that went on. It's a shift that went on over 150 years to a lot of big thinkers at the time. Uh, Bonfield speaks about it quite a lot. Um, he's like uh, by Rebellion Dinoli. Really, um, he describes how it how, how it happens. It's very interesting. Interesting. So. So is this something besides your dissertation you're working on? Is this something that you work to publish? Um, his Pirish on Tehillim, eventually? Well, eventually, I don't see myself working on, on, on such, a, such an interesting and such a huge uh, manuscript and, and keeping it just like as a, a PhD thesis somewhere in an archive. Um, of course, I'd love to, to publish it eventually. I hope, uh, I hope it will be possible. It's, it's, it's going to take more than one volume. And um, um, I hope, you know, uh, I don't know how many buyers there will be for it, but it's something that has to be done, Mitzvah Okay, well, anyone, I'll, I'll, anyone that wants, I can get you and I can give them an email, I can get in touch with you and, 
And I'm sure people hear about it. If anyone has any feedback, if they'd be interested in such a work, they should let me know in the email or on Twitter and we can, we can convince you. And then also you said, it, um, also you didn't, the Svarnon to Helim, his own, his actual uh, peerish, and on Eev, you haven't done yet either, right? Those are two that eventually you want to get. That's, uh, um, I, have, I have already written a lot on them, but um, I'll have to, when I finish with a PhD, etc., I'll have to take a year or two to finish them off. Gotcha. Okay. So thank you very much for joining me. I think it was a fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. It was fabulous. I really had fun. And I hope, I hope you, too, you did too, and the public will also have. Yeah, so like I said, if anybody has comments on this, if anyone enjoyed it, you know, let me know via email, svarmchatter at gmail.com, Twitter. Make it, you know I'll put up your email to be me, and we'll, uh, you know, that's that. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Be well.